Holmes once said, a man's mind stretched to a new dimension never returns to its original form. It was the summer of 2007 when I first stumbled upon this slum in Pune. It was pretty much your standard slum in India. No running water, one toilet facility for every thousand or so people, electric wires strung haphazardly over homes that were assembled like a house of cards, and totally non-existent building codes. And these slums start as squatter settlements that gradually evolve as people migrate in from surrounding areas. And then as the population multiplies, they sort of add on to these house of cards. And by the time they're officially labeled slums, poverty and lack of education negotiate for influence like the chicken and the egg. They're places where crime, alcoholism, depression and violence against women is really high. And with India's massive population, slum dwellers are not a majority of the population, but by my research, estimates hover around 90 million people, give or take a few million. A lot. In most slums, they're tucked out of sight from the rest of society, kind of like a cul-de-sac. There's one road in, and you won't find anybody there except for locals. And you definitely won't find any tourists there unless they're really lost. So it was the tail end of my trip when an acquaintance emailed me information about ASHA, which stands for Action for Self-Reliance, Hope, and Awareness. And it's this little grassroots nonprofit run by a few social workers who aid women in a nearby slum. So I had an extra day to kill before I headed home and decided that I would meet up with the founder, Minal Dani, in her office, which turned out to be an empty room in a, in a local police station. I wanted to learn more. And in barely an hour, Minal gave me this crash course on the plight of a press slum woman until my eyeballs were throbbing and it felt like the room was tilting. And you can check out my interview with Minal on the blog post as well. But briefly, in India, which is similar to many other parts of the world, Brides move in with their husbands' families after marriage where, you know, obviously they're expected to help keep the household humming. And, you know, just like anywhere else as well, in healthy functioning families, life is good. But in dysfunctional families, life for these Indian women can become a Cinderella nightmare really fast. Dowries, which are the household goods that are kind of customarily required of brides' families to gift to the new couple, they start to turn into blackmail and borderline hostage standoffs when the in-laws start demanding more and more from the bride's family, who either cough up more goods or basically risk the safety of their daughters. And because these young women are so vulnerable, the more that they can go along, the better they're going to get along. Even worse, a risky proactive strategy that some of these impoverished bride's parents take is keeping their daughters a quote-unquote blank slate who can be molded by the in-laws after marriage. And the more compliant the new daughter-in-law is, the less potential trouble down the road she may have. So it's, it's kind of this way of trying to prevent these girls' minds from stretching, and from knowing or wanting too much, because if they become too much of a burden, it can lead to these coincidental kitchen fires, as they're called, which is also known as bride burning, where these young brides accidentally catch fire from the stove and it leaves them scarred, disfigured, or dead, which can coincidentally now frees up the husband to leave her and marry again. And the cycle repeats. So the good news is that according to Indian law, torching your wife after the dowry runs out is illegal. And that's good news. And Asha helps these women understand their legal rights. But of course, the bad news is that emotionally broken women who have no education and no money, they're not easily comforted knowing that the law is on their side. And this is also, you know, it's not unlike the way things are in the U.S. or other areas of the world in domestic violence situations. So 
But the worst news is that people who try to change the status quo in violent societies and situations, they put themselves at risk as well. So I also found out this is why Minal chose to set up the ASHA office in the police station. Sends a message that if you mess with their little operation, at least the law will know about it quickly. And anyway, everything about this vicious cycle puts pressure on the mere idea of girls. From the day girls are born, impoverished families look at daughters as these financial and social burdens, which contributes to everything from deliberately keeping their daughters uneducated all the way down to infanticide and even selective abortion. And other statistics show that there are an estimated 30 to 70 million missing women in Indian society due to this. And when there isn't a healthy gender balance in, in a population, now it's actually putting the women who are there at even more risk of traffickers. And all I can say is, God bless Minal and her team of angels fighting this intense uphill battle. And, but as heavy and complex as the situation was, uh, I did manage to find this pinhole of hope when she explained that Asha also had this fledgling girls program. It's called the Better Life Education Program, and it's an empowerment program designed to help young girls stay in school, learn basic health that they're not being taught at home by their mothers, and basically to try to prevent them from ending up like their mothers where their backs are against the wall and they have no options. So out of the tens of millions of slum women, the Better Life Education Program had a whopping 25 girls in it to carry their generation into the future and not exactly decent odds of making any sort of a dent, but it was a start. And I asked Minal if there was any chance I could meet these girls for myself before I left. So the following day, my auto rickshaw drops me off at the edge of the slum. And from the looks on the locals' faces, I was quite possibly the only tourist ever to enter the neighborhood. And I walked along this just stinky canal lined with women washing dishes, washing clothes, washing their children. And I wove my way through this shanty town of rusted, corrugated metal homes until I finally reached this blue metal shed. And inside, this dark shed was just illuminated by a lonely bulb hanging from the ceiling. And I could see underneath were about 25 teen and tween age girls just squished together on the floor waiting patiently for their weekly meeting of empowerment to start. There's some old posters on the walls, like the food pyramids and basic health PSA posters limp on the inside wall, along with a scrap of an old chalkboard that they used to teach from. But no matter how sad this environment was, from the moment I saw these girls, I was just captivated. I mean, they're so beautiful, just lit up, and their eyes are just full of promise. And, you know, of course, they're equally surprised to see this foreign woman walking in their tiny little clubhouse. Like something special must be about to happen. And our energy is just kind of ricocheting back and forth. But my heart was filled just with this melancholy achiness, you know, because I could see that look in their eyes. You know, they live in that magical sweet spot that kids that age do, where they're no longer little kids. They're, they're beginning to discover themselves and their identities. And they have this optimism where they believe that they could actually contribute something and that they might just influence the world in some way. And they're just not aware of the statistics or how, just how bad the odds are stacked against them and uh, you know what lies ahead in reality. And as most adults know, this period doesn't last very long before reality sets in and they begin to doubt themselves and little by little surrender. 
as this heavy door of pessimism swings shut. But today the girls introduce themselves at, as the students of the Better Life Education Program and in a way just saying the words out loud, Better Life Education Program, you know, it had already stretched their minds. And, uh, but I'm thinking the words better life, you know, how in the world do they imagine a better life when they wake up every day in a slum? How do they know what a better life looks like? What are they aiming for? But unfortunately, it didn't even matter since no sooner had this meeting started that it was now announced that they were shutting the program down because Asha had now taken on the additional burden of helping rescue women from sex trafficking in their area. And I'm thinking, God, can their jobs get any harder? Uh, and the budget of this tiny little nonprofit was so overtaxed and underfunded, and the ASHA staff had to spend their resources basically helping the women who were already in trouble, as opposed to helping prevent girls from getting into this situation in the first place. So it's this nonstop triage nightmare. My eyeballs are throbbing again. And, you know, but what I didn't realize is that I was in the midst of this massive mind stretching moment of my own. And even though I felt so helpless in the face of such grim information I had taken in over the last 48 hours or so, from blank slates to kitchen fires to 70 million missing women, you know, now that I knew this information, I couldn't unknow it. My mind was never going to be able to not think about these girls and see that light in their eyes and, and the facts that they once had their, their program shut down after that happens, their mothers are going to have to try to erase the few dreams that they had in order to get them back to the blank slate as a way of protecting them. Anyway, I just wanted so badly to keep this program open, even if it was just for a year, just to buy them a little bit more time to dream. But I had to be reasonable because all logic and common sense told me that no matter how emotional I felt, this isn't my place to get involved. And I cannot be making promises of donations that I can't afford and I'm leaving the country in a matter of hours. And, you know, the bottom line was the odds of this ridiculously tiny program even surviving were pathetic at best. And what are 25 little girls going to do against this almost institutionalized oppression? But then some days, you know, you have these moments where you lose all common sense. Your mouth blurts out, I'll get the money if you keep the program open before your brain can stop it from happening. So stay tuned for the rest of this adventure in my next podcast. I'm Dina Fessler, broadcasting from the GSD Hayloft. And if you'd like to receive other updates or when uh, part two of this adventure is ready, just send us your email address and we'll notify you when the next podcast airs. Mm -hmm.